Good evening and welcome to Trump in Asia, a more dangerous place, a Latrobe Asia webinar. I am Beck Strading, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would like to pay my respects to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who are watching this webinar. So part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to engage the public on meaningful debate and discussion and to deepen our understanding and knowledge uh, of the Asian region. And tonight I'm particularly honoured uh, to launch La Trobe Asia's fourth policy brief, which has been produced, edited and designed by our fabulous digital communications producer, Matt Smith. And this policy brief titled A More Dangerous Place features eight opinion pieces from well-renowned experts from across the region uh, and is a retrospective of US-Asia relations during the past three and a half years of the Trump administration. So how has the relationship between the United States and Asia fared under the leadership of Donald Trump? Has the political environment in Asia become more uncertain? Has it become more dangerous, as our title suggests? Will the situation improve in the future? Uh, what will it mean uh, for the balance of power in the region if the situation doesn't improve? So here with me uh, tonight to launch our policy brief and to discuss these vital uh, regional issues is our terrific panel. So first, I would like to introduce Professor Jia Daozhang, who is zooming in tonight from Beijing. Um, he is a professor of international political economy at the School of International Studies at Peking University, uh, and is an expert on non-traditional security threats in Asia. And I'm really delighted um, to have you here, Daozhang, uh, not just um, for presenting at this webinar, but for also contributing to the policy brief uh, and giving us your insights on the economic relations between US-China uh, under Trump. So uh, thank you uh, again uh, for those contributions. Our second guest this evening is Associate Professor Nicole Curato, who joins us from the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. Nicole is an expert on deliberative democracy, social theory and political participation. So I'd like to welcome you, Nicole, coming to us from Canberra, and also to thank you uh, for the contribution that you made to the policy brief, uh, looking at the Trump administration's impact on politics in the Philippines. So welcome, Nicole. And finally, our third guest is Dr. Huang Litu, uh, also zooming in from uh, our nation's capital of Canberra. Uh, Huang is a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, in the Defence and Strategy Program, where she researches issues of Asian regional security with a particular focus on Southeast Asia uh, and relations between China and Southeast Asia. Uh, and so I'm again thrilled that you are able to join us tonight uh, and that you were able to, to write a piece for us uh, for the policy brief on US-Vietnam relations during um, the, the era of Trump. So welcome. 
There will be an opportunity for audience uh, Q&A in the second half of this webinar for which we will be using Slido. Uh, so please do uh, go to slido.com and enter the code hash a, uh, hash a531 and you can see we have prepared earlier uh, a background uh, with the code. So you will be able to ask questions on Slido, which everybody will be able to see as the discussion is taking place. Uh, you can also vote on questions that other people have asked, which I would really like to encourage you to do uh, because it pushes the most popular questions uh, to the front of the line. If you are having difficulties with Slido, uh, but would like to ask a question, please feel free to email the Latrobe Asia team at asia at latrobe.edu.au uh, and they will be able to, to type the question in for you. Uh, but let's get started. Uh, and I'd like to first um, talk to, uh, take the discussion to you, Dao Zheng. I want to ask you about the nature of the relationship between China and the United States under Trump because, you know, over the last three or so years, there's been a fair bit of drama, high drama in the economic relationship. We've seen so-called trade wars, we've seen tit-for-tat trade sanctions, we've seen disputes over international rules and institutions, you know, the World Trade Organization uh, as an example. And you argue in your piece, this is something that I found really uh, interesting interesting about your piece that this is less a pivotal moment of decoupling, as it's been widely described um, in analysis, uh, than one of deflating established expectations. So I really want to, to get your thoughts about what you mean uh, about these sort of taken for granted assumptions about the direction of US-China economic relations. Has that kind of misled us into thinking that, that these relations would uh, continue between uh, the two states? Well, <clears throat> thank you for having me. I benefited from uh, the previous work um, in preparing for the publication, and also you and your colleagues um, did a great job bringing my writing up to the level of uh, publication. So I'm happy to be here. But in terms of your question, I think this is probably uh, one of the most uh, critical knots that uh, that you, you can call it a blockage point in the blood veil when we think about uh, if we can compare US-China relation to the, the body. It, you can, we can have a zombie, we can have a 70-year-old body, we can have a more dynamic body. But the blockage point is that on the US side, and uh, also not just US, it's analytically in larger parts of the world, that you have this idea of a trade-off. That is to say the U.S. opens to trade with China and in return, China would uh, reform its political system in the U.S. image. But on the Chinese side, there was never that sort of trade point. Uh, we, we don't, trade is trade. We sell products to the U.S. Uh, we negotiate the price. The U.S. has nothing to do with socialism or communism or speaking a word of Chinese language. So the, a good deal of U.S. frustration that goes way before Trump, way beyond Trump, is that 
somehow the Chinese owe us. Somehow China's success is made in America's backyard. And you have this pervasive sense of indignation or, or you have this sense of righteousness to say, quote unquote, lecture China. And that's met with a very, um, may not be that lively, but a very real and very strong sense of resistance. Uh, I wouldn't think uh, there would be a difference if, let's say, the political party here in China were it came to uh, power through elections, or the political party here in China had a different name. And it's sort of like, uh, you know, we have two colleagues, one from the Philippines, one from Vietnam, right? It's sort of like for hundreds or thousands of years, we dealt with our neighbors. They could say, say, come in to say hello, or some say it was a tributary, but we never said, well, there was a trade-off. So long as you were trading with China, you become more Chinese. Uh, we would force you or else we cut you off or we place conditions. So, um, but the real challenge I would think is what happens when the current pattern of interactions sort of com uh, contentious is going to last way beyond Trump. Whoever becomes next U.S. president is going to be, let's say, at least one more U.S. presidencies to come. So the real test will be, let's say, 10 or 15 years from today. China still is as defiant as it is. And uh, being a continental economy, it actually grows fairly well. What does the U.S. say? What kind of, let's say, elevated agitation, a sense of agitation would come, and how do we manage that? And likewise, can the Chinese continue to insist that we have been so thousands of years, just leave us alone? Can we, is that an option? So I think the real challenge is going to come 10 or 15 years down the road. Thank you. Well, and I'd like to sort of, um, you know, encourage you to, to tell us a little bit more about um, those challenges uh, uh, because, you know, thinking from an Australian perspective, there are already quite a lot of, you know, there's quite a frosty relationship with uh, between uh, Australia and China right at the moment. Uh, you uh, yourself, um, Dao Zhong, have strong connections uh, with Australia and, and with, with Australians. So uh, I wouldn't mind uh, if you could tell us a bit more about how you think that the uncertainty or the unpredictability of the Trump administration has altered China's approaches or policies um, to Australia in particular, but also um, to the region uh, more broadly considered? I will be trying to be careful because uh, the uh, public discourse environment on international affairs in Australia is getting, let's say, interesting. I speak only for myself. Um, it's really a great puzzle why geopolitical relationships between China and Australia has to be this contentious. You see, we are separated by huge oceans, unlike Japan, that is also a close American ally, or Korea for that matter. China and Australia never had 
much of a real historical entanglement. And uh, it is true that some analysts, or probably some officials here in China, um, were a bit opportunistic in relating to Australia by way before this, way before the, uh, let's say, even Kevin Rudd's administration. They were painting Australia as a little more than an appendix to the United States. That really is a reflection of, um, let's, should I say, lack of knowledge, a lack of due diligence. If you look at Australia, it has always had a, its own um, set of challenges in relating to major powers in Asia, be this Japan or Indonesia, and even wartime China. A lot of us were not very familiar with that part of history, and that's really uh, uh, to our disadvantage. But nevertheless, in recent years, when folks in uh, Canberra openly talk about making a choice between Washington, D.C. and Beijing, and that sort of uh, reconfirmed uh, a nightmarish scenario of Australia having no baggage of history. This is, there is a difference here. We understand Japan or the Japanese society may have a baggage that's pulling itself back. It may not want to repeat the lesson, the, 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 the history of war. But Australia and China never had any much of a territorial or war to each other. We, there is a sense that you would go theoretical all the way. We don't expect Australia to be able to pull itself back like some in Japan constantly remind themselves. We hear those voices in Japan, but in Australia, out of Australia, it's like, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And that reconfirms a net marriage scenario of a country that can piggyback on the United States in some of these operations close to China, if you recall the Taiwan Straits or whatnot. And then it's a little bit far, frankly speaking, for us to hit back. What do you do? Yeah. So uh, Australia, in that sense, is viewed with a sense of apprehension, if not fear. That's a point I don't, I don't think that often transcends. A lot of diplomats probably speak, or, or scholars, uh, in other terms. But nevertheless, I would think uh, there are ways to, uh, for us to put the relationship back into um, some balance uh, if we had made a greater effort to relate to each other, to understand, uh, for Chinese especially, and Australia's search for security by looking at Australian versions of history of the Australian un place in the universe. And then likewise, uh, I would think the Australian side probably should have a lot more of talking to the Chinese rather than just about the Chinese. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we might pick up on some of those um, themes in, in the question and answer, but it's really uh, interesting to get your perspective um, 
particularly given what's happened over the over the last uh, couple of months in the relationship. Uh, but I might uh, turn to Huang uh, now. Uh, we were talking about this before we, we went to air. I was very impressed um, that you made a prediction about international relations early on in the Trump administration, and you can declare now that it's come out as largely accurate. Um, so congratulations. <laughs> Your crystal ball gazing uh, has been very impressive. Uh, but you, you, you did say at the start of uh, the Trump uh, administration um, that the relationship with Vietnam had the opportunity to improve despite, um, and, and you very diplomatically phrase this as Trump's unusual approach to managing international affairs. Uh, and that this is, you know, a somewhat counterintuitive prediction, um, but one that seems to have, have sort of borne out uh, over the last uh, three years. So what I'm really curious to, to ask you about is, is this a consequence of Trump's uh, own approach to international relations or his administration? Or is the Trump administration building on progress that was already being made under the Obama administration? You know, is, is there something new going on or is this really a continuation of a, a, an improvement in relations over time? Yes, so um, the US-Vietnam relations had been on the rather positive trajectory for some time. And as I uh, mentioned in the brief, it, the Obama's administration added on very high note. Uh, so he visited Vietnam just a couple months before the end of his term. He was hugely, very well, warmly uh, received in Vietnam and he lifted the last part of the embargo. And that created the kind of momentum of and expectations uh, that, and also, you know, at that point, a lot of people uh, would have bet their bets on Hillary Clinton winning the elections. And she was very clear in terms of her view on the South China Sea. So there was a lot of uh, expectation going on. When Trump was uh, elected, I think there was uh, quite a, a lot of anxiety in Vietnam how to approach um, this new uh, candidate and this new president and what is his um, line of foreign policy. And as you mentioned, a lot of uh, analysts think of him as uh, unpredictable. But in, um, in a way, I think the Vietnamese uh, came to uh, deal with President Trump in a fairly successful way as we assess it in the, in the brief, uh, particularly if you compare with the region. Um, and it's not because it was very good. Um, so let me rephrase. It's not very positive relationship. It's least bad compared to the region, I would, I would say. Particularly when you compare with, um, you know, partners and allies, which much stronger relationship, defense relationship and treaty allies like the Philippines or Thailand, or even, you know, partners like Singapore who, who had very strong already existing ties. Vietnam had a lot of room to improve. So therefore, uh, you know, the relativity uh, is different. Um, and also I think Vietnam was very um, nervous and did the early steps to mitigate this uh, anxiety. So for example, Pre uh, Prime Minister Winston Phuc was the first Southeast Asian uh, leader to visit uh, Trump's White House. He was only the third of the Asian leader to visit White House. Um, he was very forward-leaning in terms to, you know, um, assure Trump that the Vietnam is taking steps to minimize the trade deficit 
uh, between that's the, the sore point of, of Trump. Um, and, you know, Vietnam also hosted the second Trump Kim summit. So, uh, uh, and actually, President Trump in 2017 uh, came to APEC hosted in Vietnam in his first year of presidency. That hasn't happened for a long, long time. Right. So uh, effectively, during this presidency of, uh, of Donald Trump, he visited Vietnam twice. Uh, so I think the only Southeast Asian country that he, he managed to visit twice uh, had finished APEC summit. Uh, he did visit Manila, uh, but you know, left earlier on and, and really didn't uh, attend any regional summit uh, uh, afterwards. So uh, for Vietnam, you know, it had to have that attention of Trump was already seen as diplomatic um, success. The second point I would say, yes, I agree with you that there was already a momentum uh, with or without Trump, which means um, the recognition of defense community on both sides, the security communities on both sides, that they are good partners for each other. And uh, obviously China was the biggest point that joined the two, uh, the, the biggest commonality right now is the, the China threat. This will be uh, probably lasting for some time. I think the Vietnamese um, qu quite like uh, in the beginning, uh, Trump's more open um, um, approach to China and willingness to call out China, including on, in the South China Sea coercions, but other issues as well. So that is something uh, that stands out, especially in comparison, as I said, with the rest of the region. So if you um, if you look at, for example, regional surveys, regional studies comparing the entire Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnamese uh, perception of the U.S., even under Trump, um, is the most positive. Uh, which is quite interesting. For example, I'll give you a quick number, which is, um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, regionally, um, uh, only a fifth, uh, regionally, across 10 Southeast Asian countries are studied then by a Singaporean um, um, think tank. Uh, we tested whether the U.S. have still be playing a key security role in the region. Uh, a median of Southeast Asia, only 33%. 32% of uh, median Southeast Asian answered that, but Vietnamese uh, responded only was 55. So in every question, Vietnam's view on US was significantly higher. Um, so that was quite interesting. I will, I will wrap it up um, because I know that we have more time for discussion, but obviously those perception were, and, and uh, those analysis were before COVID. So we have to take some correction, you know, uh, since COVID and after COVID, how that perception and views on the US will change. And I think they will um, to some to, to some degree. Some, change, some things won't change. I think um, the recognition of China threat um, won't change regardless of November elections results, um, but you know, maybe tactics and the way of treating China. So I think that commonality that I stressed between Vietnam and US uh, being the, 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 the perception of China threat uh, is going to stay there. So there's still a lot of room to uh, deepen and develop uh, the partnership and the relationship between the uh, U.S. and Vietnam. But I'll final, finally just uh, end up on, on the note uh, before taking too much time is that uh, there will be uh, a lot of room for change as well because the November election in the U.S., but also um, the upcoming party congress in Vietnam early 2021 where uh, sort of 
the change of guard will happen and the new policies for the next five years will happen. Um, I think the mega trend would be still very much willingness to cooperate and um, strong um, views on the US role. Uh, but a lot of uh, details may, may change because we will have new at both administrations on both sides. And I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you. I mean, I, I just find it uh, incredibly interesting, given, given the history uh, between the United States and Vietnam, that this is where we've kind of landed uh, in, in 2020. It's quite fascinating. And uh, just before I, I turn to Nicole, I uh, would like your thoughts. You mentioned the South China Sea. Obviously, this is a, an interest that, that I have as well. So maybe I'm just being a little bit self-indulgent in asking you this at the, at the moment. But um, uh, to have the Trump administration activities in this domain, so the uh, increased number and regularity uh, of freedom of navigation operations, how have these been received in Vietnam? Do, do Vietnamese policymakers like these sorts of operations? Do they see them as stabilising or destabilising? Uh, do they want the United States to involve itself more in these disputes? Well, I think there are a number of issues that are considered uh, rather positive. First of all, that South China Sea figures high um, in uh, in the Trump's administration's policy, which was in the beginning a concern that it won't, uh, given how he started with the, the Korean Peninsula focus. Um, but it, it, it has figured. Um, the phone ops themselves, yes, they are they are fine, but I don't think um, many uh, many in, in Hanoi would think it's sufficient. Um, they were very happy to have several times the U.S. State Department very fast and quite uh, explicit response to, for example, uh, the Chinese activities um, in the South China Sea uh, incurring into Vietnamese exclusive economic zone, which Vietnam has protested, and the U.S. State Department was the only to come up with a very fast a statement uh, condemning the issues and also uh, explicitly saying that the um, Vietnam has been, uh, you know, um, exercising its own rights in exploring uh, the resources within its ex exclusive economic zone. So that was very well received. Whether this is enough or not, of course, there would be uh, more expectation to do more. And uh, there have been, of course, as well, um, recommendations for the U.S. Uh, to do something about UNCLOS as well. So there are, of course, more things that, that Hanoi would expect or would want, would wish um, the U.S. could do. But I think the, the things that you've mentioned, the phone-offs and uh, other things are so far well received. Uh, before I, I turn to uh, Nicole, I would just like to remind our audience um, that Slido is open for questions. Uh, if you have uh, any uh, issues getting your questions up, please feel free to email the team and we've got the code behind us. And I see uh, Diana has sent a message out through chat and we've got some uh, coming up at the moment. But uh, Nicole, I'd like to turn to you. You told me before we started that you've bought a, a plant, especially for this occasion. So so thank you. It looks great in your background. Um, and you've contributed uh, to the policy brief on, um, on the Philippines. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is we know that uh, President Rodrigo uh, Duterte is quite a character um, himself uh, and uh, was quite, I guess, um, suspicious or distrustful of Barack Obama. Uh, didn't really like being lectured on things like human rights or, or rule of law. Uh, 
Uh, so I'm wondering, how has Duterte taken to Trump uh, and, and vice versa? Has uh, Trump's sort of strongman leadership style emboldened Duterte's own uh, authoritarian tendencies? And how has this played out um, in, in terms of the broader um, relationships in the region, given that Duterte also appears to be cultivating closer relationships with Beijing? Yes, well, the relationship between President Duterte and President Trump uh, appears to be congenial, um, if not affectionate. And I say this because um, President Duterte even serenaded President Trump in a gala dinner hosted by the Philippines, I think around three years ago. Um, but yeah, you're right. What distinguishes President Trump from President Obama and actually other former U.S. heads of state is that he did not press President Duterte uh, about human rights abuses. So in that sense, Duterte got a free pass from the US. And my sense is this is also the same reason why President Duterte or the Duterte regime uh, finds it convenient to build an economic relationship with Beijing because it does not make this relationship um, conditional on whether the Philippines um, protects liberal values. Um, but I guess my, my main contribution to this conversation is also to emphasize uh, the, the U.S. approach to human rights goes beyond President Trump. So, for example, there is the Global Magnitsky Human Rights and Accountability Act in the U.S. It's a, it's a bipartisan bill enacted by the Congress in 2016, which sanctions governments implicated in human rights abuses. And one of the subjects of the Magnitsky Act is no other than Senator De La Rosa, who was a former police chief and chief architect of Duterte's drug war and his visa to travel to the US was revoked. And so this ignited President Duterte's order to terminate a critical military agreement with the United States. And as a footnote, this order for termination of the military agreement is currently frozen. So I think just days before the Latrobe Asia brief was about to get published, I had to send a panicked email just because of an about face in this uh, termination of the agreement. Um, but the point I wish to emphasize, I guess, in conclusion is that uh, pressure points for the Philippines to respect human rights uh, may not necessarily come from President Trump, but it may come from other sources in the United States. It's always risky writing about politics uh, when everything seems to be changing. Exactly. I had to check before going on Zoom this afternoon if it changed again. <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, I mean, you end your, your contribution to the policy brief uh, with a really interesting observation um, that the Philippines has been a steady supplier of nurses um, to the United States with over 150,000 Filipino nurses migrating to the US since the 1960s. And you suggest it is not an overstatement to say that Filipinos are frontliners uh, in America's COVID crisis and that, uh, and I'm quoting you, the empire wants the Philippines back. So I'm really curious to ask, uh, I'm really interested to know what, what you mean by, um, by that statement. Uh, but also about this question of, of how what the COVID um, crisis has meant for Philippine relations with US and how it might sort of determine uh, the, the future trajectory of relations between the US and Philippines. So I wasn't being rhetorical when I used the word empire um, in the title of my piece, The Empire Wants You Back. Um, I think the term empire actually puts a spotlight on the material and cultural relations uh, between the US and the Philippines and how these relationships 
are not static, but constantly negotiated and redrawn. And I think the experience of both countries in COVID-19 is an example. So as you mentioned, my contribution talks about how uh, the US, U.S. health system is kept together by a steady supply of nurses from the Philippines. And there's a lot of excellent work on this topic. The book Empire of Care uh, by Catherine Choi is an example. And the message is that the nurse migration to the U.S. is not simply a reaction to the shortage of healthcare workers in America, but it's deeply rooted in U.S. colonialism um, in the Philippines. So for example, the institutionalization of nursing training programs was actually part of the American colonial project of training Philippine, Filipino women to be, the ready, to be ready to be exported to the U.S. because of their English speaking skills, their docility, their obedience. And on the part of the nurses, there's an idealization of the U.S as a destination for professional growth and lifestyle aspirations. So here we're talking about the American dream. And it's precisely this culture, I think, that Filipino healthcare workers are among the most vulnerable frontliners in COVID-19 in the US, as well as, as well as in the UK, if you look at the death rates of, of frontliners um, dying of COVID. And because the reason for that is because Filipino nurses are considered sacrificial lambs, um, the heroic staff who go to work even without proper PPEs, and they could easily lose their jobs or get punished if they speak up and complain of not having uh, the proper protective equipment. So this is very much part of the model migrant myth of Filipino migrant workers. So why does this matter when we talk about security and Trump in Asia? I think uh, this is part of a broader conversation about the untapped power of a seemingly insignificant nation like the Philippines when it comes to global crises. It's not just a case of big powers uh, taking advantage of the Philippines diasporic population when they need it. But I think it's also a matter of how diasporic countries like the Philippines can reshape critical institutions like healthcare systems in the US, Australia, uh, and even Canada. And I think the reshaping of relations uh, needs to have this, I suppose, interracial transnational character with other migrant groups asserting the right of migrant care workers um, in the health sector. And I guess just as a footnote, of course, we know that President Trump has recently issued a directive um, canceling uh, work visas for a lot of migrant workers. And one of the exceptions, or actually when COVID happened, one of the biggest announcements of the U.S. Embassy is that if you have healthcare training, you can, you can jump the queue, you can actually apply for a visa now. So in a way, we can see the very transactional character of the Trump regime, not only on the level of, um, uh, of government elites, but also on the level of the people. So I think when we think about US-Philippine relations, it's not a one-way power relationship. There has to be a realization of power in political economy terms that the Philippines actually is not a small nation when it comes to issues like COVID-19, given that Filipino frontliners are all over the world. Uh, yeah, that's it's fascinating to, to hear you speak on this topic. And I think that you're right that in, in sort of typical international security conversations, we don't often talk about these sorts of, of issues. So it's really interesting to hear that perspective. Uh, we do have questions coming in uh, thick and fast. So we are turning to audience Q&A. So please write your question using www.slido.com and don't forget to um, like questions. I see um, somebody has just written in the chat. Please use the Slido rather than the chat function to ask your question. Uh, I am going to start 
um, with, a, with a broad question that's just popped up from our friend at Asia Link, Melissa Conley-Tyler. Hi, Melissa. Thank you for watching. Uh, I'm going to ask each of the panellists, and I'll start with um, Dow Jung. This is the question. Uh, in the Latrobe Asia brief, Nick Bisley says, under Trump, US-Asia strategy has been incoherent. So one of our other contributors who will be doing a podcast uh, with Latrobe Asia in a couple of weeks on this topic has described US-Asia strategy as incoherent. So she wants to know, do the speakers agree? Uh, and have there been any pockets of uh, coherence in the approach? So I'll start with um, Dao Jung. What's your opinion on this? Uh, has the Asia strategy of the US been incoherent? I see more continuity in uh, U.S.-Asia strategy. Um, the, uh, in terms of military arrangement, uh, there has never been a really fundamental changes, and the U.S. stays as the, uh, um, I, I wouldn't say unchallenged, but sometimes the Chinese try to challenge a little bit, but uh, it's the unrivaled power. And in terms of economics, um, the U.S. would like to, to trade and investment, but when it feels there are serious challenges, it used to have these uh, problems with Japan. Now they have uh, similar problems in the trade with China. But uh, the trade curves or the tariffs is only part of the picture. The U.S. would still like to uh, uh, come and invest here in China innovation. So um, it, I don't really see there is much of a uh, real change. And in the cultural terms, um, the earlier Nicole made a good point about you know, how they treat um, frontline health workers and whatnot. Um, I don't, and coupled with the recent events within the U.S. itself with the uh, uh, race-based, um, should we say, demonstrations or whatnot, um, there's a good deal of continuity. I wouldn't think there's a lot of change. Uh, so I might um, uh, get Huang to, to intervene now in this conversation because, you know, as, a, as somebody who, who managed to sort of predict um, parts of uh, improving relations, uh, do you agree? Do you think that there are parts, of, that, that there are coherent parts to, to Trump's Asia strategy um, and that, you know, that, that that might come from having a, a more transactional approach to managing international affairs? I probably wouldn't attribute everything, um, the elements that I would argue that are coherent or continuous to Trump himself. I think a lot of that is um, foreign policy and defense establishment um, that have been carrying on uh, along the, the, the work and manage not to have as much disruption. Uh, for example, the, the tra trajectory of of Vietnam relations that I've just said, talk about is largely, um, it's, it's continued and, and it's promoted by the Indo-PACOM, by, you know, Admiral uh, Phil Davidson had made several trips to the region, including to Vietnam increasingly. Uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy um, that, that did mention Vietnam among the key partners. So I think there are, there are elements that are continuous um, and probably will continue uh, unless they get disruption from Trump. And uh, in one of, uh, of my uh, argumentation, I think Vietnam is um, small enough uh, so that it doesn't 
attract as much Trump's attention. And therefore, it, it can carry on uh, with the line that, that, like I said, the foreign policy and uh, the State Department and, and, and the Defense Department would, would wish it to be. Um, Trump did refer to Vietnam as the worst abuser of all, um, but you know it, it is something is just rhetorical. Um, incoherence. There are so there are those are elements of of coherence and more continuous. Of course, there are many that are see uh, for us analysts seem uh, incoherent and counterintuitive. For example, how he treats long term allies, uh, which is arguably the biggest U.S. strength. Um, so Vietnam is not in that basket. That's why it, it, it manages to get away with, with uh, a lot. But to the broader argument that Nick made, uh, whether you know Asia is less secure because of Trump, I don't think Trump can also take the whole um, credit for that because the general uh, strategic environment and we have other actors uh, not to mention um, for example Chinese uh, activities in the South China Sea but also Taiwan and others um, can also take a lot of credit for changing a strategic environment so yes there are parts of of that that we can um, put on the Trump's unusual conduct of, of foreign policy and relations with the actors in the region but I don't think he can really take the whole credit for that. Uh, fair enough. And, and I think that the, the point that you make is really important. There is a risk in this kind of activity of just talking about Trump that we place too much emphasis on leadership and personalities um, and trying to draw out the relationships between who's in charge and the institutions um, that, that, that are important for, for defence and foreign policy. And that's really um, something that we, we need to do. So I might um, turn to Nicole. What's your thoughts on this issue? Um, uh, is Nick right? Uh, as you, uh, has uh, the US-Asia strategy been incoherent in your view? I will echo what you said. We have to make a distinction between the personalities and the institutions. So, for example, when President Duterte on a whim said he would like to cancel a military agreement with the US, President Trump just said, great, it will save us a lot of money which is very much consistent to an America first approach, very nationalist, um, inward looking rather than reaching out um, to the region. But then if we look at this on the level of institutions, when, for example, the armed forces of the Philippines put forward their position on the matter, they actually um, wanted to keep this agreement because they want to keep that interoperability working, not just in relation to having a consistent policy in fighting insurgency in southern Philippines and, and extremism, but also when it comes to disaster preparedness. So it's always the United States that responds first, whether it's a typhoon or an earthquake, um, although it's quite peculiar how the U.S. is no longer viewed to be uh, the first savior in a way of a former colony during the pandemic, because obviously I guess they have their own problems to deal with. But I guess this is the point uh, that's important to underscore. Um, I agree with my co-panelists that we can see a lot of continuity, especially if we go beyond the rhetoric. Um, the relationship predominantly still remains the same. We cannot dismantle a long history of joint military exercises, of, of joint intelligence operations, uh, just because we have very mercurial presidents from both countries. 
Yeah, I think I think uh, issues of path dependence are, are important here as well. That, that, that there are these long histories of, of relations and, and um, interoperability and, uh, and those sorts of issues that make it difficult, even for uh, you know a president to try to untangle uh, <laughs> those webs of, of relations. So um, thanks for that question, Melissa. I hope Nick is uh, watching at home as we pull apart his argument. Uh, but I might turn to the next question, uh, which is actually about India. So. I'm I might pass this one on to you, Dao Jung, uh, if you don't mind, because it's about the present situation uh, on the border uh, between India and China. And we do have a contribution in the policy brief, uh, brief from Tanvi Madan, who talks about uh, US-India relations, and uh, we're doing a podcast with her next week. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, um, Dao Jung, how much can India rely upon the United States uh, with uh, Trump as president? Uh, and this question is coming from Canada. And do you see, um, you know, whether India can, uh, India's reliance uh, on the United States will change under a Biden government? Uh, but if you could give us some insights also on the India-China relationship at the moment, I think that would be much appreciated. Actually, by um, coincidence, I was just uh, joining a webinar last night with colleagues based in uh, New Delhi. Um, we were discussing, no, the webinar makes things happen almost instantaneously. Uh, we, we were talking about um, the Indian decision to ban um, some of these Chinese uh, apps but sold by Chinese companies in that country and, and other related issues. Now, the border incident is how, I don't know how to describe it, but the end result is um, it gets a lot more attention in India than it does here in China. But uh, let's not forget the Indian foreign policy has its own strengths. Um, it's probably, India has traditionally been the only country of its size, the only major country, regardless of level of development, regardless of its uh, military capacity, to truly keep an equal distance with all the major powers. India does not go with anyone. And in many ways, this should be a model for Chinese foreign policy. That is to say, you deal with each and every country, with, you know, keep everyone at arm's length. I don't think the... Uh, uh, this goes back to Nehru or before Nehru. And, uh, I, I think Indians, that tradition of Indian foreign policy can continue. Um, I wouldn't think the U.S. is going to have much of a chance in um, affecting a change, uh, especially uh, given that uh, China has changed in many ways. Um, and many Indians, elites are convinced of the Chinese change of not siding with Pakistan you know, on some of the geostrategic issues uh, with India. So we you should hear China keep it more of a balance between uh, India and Pakistan. Um, I thought that's probably what it is. And hope chances are there will be a telephone call uh, at the highest level of the two governments in a few days uh, in relation to the border, border situation. But I. I don't think that that's quote unquote re Indian reliance on the US was ever an option in the first place. India Thank does you. not rely on anyone. Thank and you. it's good. It's good. 
That's really, um, that's interesting uh, to, to hear your thoughts on that issue. Um, we do have a couple of uh, other China related questions, but I might um, throw to Huang. Uh, Hunter Marsden, hi Hunter, uh, has a question about China's response to uh, COVID-19 and how that has affected its image in Southeast Asia and how do regional states view uh, United States and Chinese assistance uh, and competition uh, for influence? So I might start with Huang and then I'll, I'll ask Nicole to, to comment on that question as well. Hi Hunter, you would know that Southeast Asia is very diverse and have very different views, wouldn't you? And um, you know, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to say how China to talk about how China responded. I can talk about how um, the regions, the regional voices and regional perceptions of how China uh, deal with it. I think um, it's a mixed. Um, some some have uh, expressed opinion that uh, in the beginning it looked really scary, but China had been able to come around um, and be uh, seems to be in control very soon um, it started to uh, provide the PPEs the mask and and roll out the so-called mass di diplomacy um, that resonated to some but not all um, and it, it didn't also um, it didn't roll out to everyone I think um, for example my colleagues in Malaysia have ra raised a number of um, cases but it wasn't uh, so much uh, the same in Vietnam for example right um, and the views have been different and now we potentially are facing the second wave or, or, or more and beyond so we are far from really having the full picture and having you know sort of decisive opinions on that uh, what is uh, what is rather consistent is the the view on US though um, so U.S. have provided a number of monetary uh, uh, sums of monetary assistance to the region, which is less uh, well known uh, to to the public, uh, but not so much in terms of providing uh, masks and PPEs, for example. In fact, it was Vietnam who sent um, a lot of masks and PPEs to the United States, and also um, both in terms of donation as well as normal trade. So that was quite a, sh a shocking moment for not only um, the two countries' history, but also for the region. I think, um, like I said in the in the opening remarks, uh, it was it comes like a sh for, like a shock for many in the region. Um, I think globally as well, but particularly in Southeast Asia, that used to think uh, that U.S. Um, you know uh, is was so uh, taken aback by by this um, virus and pandemic, and was uh, is not dealing very well. So that certainly has uh, and and probably will continue to impact on the perception of power, control, and governance of the U.S. Uh, so, I mean, there's some really interesting points to be made there. And uh, Nicole, I would like your perspective on this issue around, um, you know, China's response to COVID and how you see this as uh, affecting, you know, um, Southeast Asian states and, and relations with China and, and also uh, the United States. So um, President Duterte's close relationship with China has actually become one of the wedges that divides um, the Duterte administration from the opposition. And one of the biggest critiques now um, against President Duterte is the preferential treatment that he gives to Chinese interests in relation to 
the handling of the pandemic. So for example, the Philippines did not close its borders right away because it did not want to um, stop Chinese tourists and investors from coming in the Philippines, even though everyone knows that the virus is actually already taken off in China. One of the first industries that were allowed to open after the lockdown or the semi-lockdown was an online gambling operation that serves Chinese clients. And all of these have become rallying cries for opposition figure to say, this is what happens with a very powerful China and a subservient government that prioritizes them first. And even though China did provide what uh, Huang was talking about in terms of mass diplomacy, there are a lot of critics of the president who also uses this kind of diplomacy to discredit uh, this kind of approach of China in terms of giving aid. So for example, there have been critiques of flawed PPEs, flawed masks, fake tests, um, linking it back to China. So I think my personal worry here as a sociologist is how this virus has actually inflamed more racial tensions um, between Filipinos and Chinese people. Um, it has been accused, for example, I'm not sure how it's like in other Southeast Asian countries, but the concept of the Wuhan virus has taken off in the Philippines as well. So this is part, I guess, of the long resentment that some Filipinos have against uh, Chinese nationals in the country who have taken jobs away from them and now taken even more jobs from them because of the virus. So yeah, so I think that's how I would interpret um, how Filipinos uh, receive China's power in relation um, to this pandemic. It's being used as a critique uh, to a president who until now is still very popular. Fascinating. Um, so I might, um, we've, we've got a, a few minutes for questions. Uh, I might turn uh, the conversation back to you, Dao Zhang, because we have a question from Rowan Kalik, who I understand is, is somebody that, that you know quite well and is uh, on our advisory board. Hi, Rowan, thank you for tuning in. Uh, and he wants to know how Xi Jinping has adapted his security or economic strategies to accommodate Trump. Um, so uh, especially relating to trade deal lapses due to, to COVID. Um, so has, has, the, uh, has, has China's administration, uh, I guess, altered uh, its policy directions due to uh, the Trump administration being in power uh, in the United States? That's a very tough question. Um, I was in some ways involved in a lot of those discussions, so there are too many details that can, you know, we can, we can um, talk about. But I don't think the the uh, we there was that much a meeting of mind between China and the United States, even with the agreement. If you look at the purchase, um, uh, the the numerical the targets of uh, procurement, these were put down in dollar terms. And look, prices change. <laughs> and um, that, it, it is simply mind-boggling how the negotiators ever agreed on that. If you look at the trade relationship, in the end, it's the effort you make. And I don't really think the Chinese have really figured out leadership, um, how to, quote unquote, deal effectively with Mr. Trump or a U.S. presidency very much like the United States, uh, the criticism against Trump administration. Uh, we here in China should have pursued trade agreements, better trade deals with EU, with Australia, with Southeast Asia as a counterbalance to the kind of bilateral pressure that came from Washington DC, uh, but we didn't. And uh, so 
I think that Heath Street will come back to uh, offer its assessment. But at the end of the day, um, the what saves the economic relationship between China and the United States, or China Australia, for that matter, China Vietnam or China Philippines, is actually human ingenuity in the domestic economies, rather than uh, these. Uh, trade deals one way or another. With or without a trade deal, people even smuggle if there is a need. So it's really uh, how you actually organize production and trade within your border. Uh, that's really the fundamental. Uh, just briefly, the, 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 the highest rated question uh, just before b before we wrap up um, is for, for uh, you, Dao Zhang, uh, is about um, uh, China's uh, policies uh, in relation to, to Xinjiang uh, in, in Hong Kong. How are these human rights issues affecting China's uh, relationships with the United States, uh, but also more broadly in the region? We are not very familiar with what's really going on in Xinjiang. There is a blind spot to, for me to admit. I don't really know. Uh, even though I'm a professor in a fairly well-funded university. And uh, given the uh, history of uh, how such matters are handled, I would think in the end, it's some equitable level of treatment, some level of ex uh, access to education, access to employment. Uh, we don't, even though, uh, I, I don't, maybe we have, Ms. Ms. Huang can tell us, here is the, those countries that followed the Soviet tradition had a long history of, you know, separating their own people according to different so-called ethnicities. We have 56 here in China. We don't really think that a way out of this is to claim difference, claim difference, claim difference, and be hell-splitting. There has to be going in the direction of more of a common uh, template. Um, so I've traveled to Xinjiang before, but I don't know what's really going on and what really exactly got the Americans so excited. Um, there is a blind spot, frankly speaking. Now about Hong Kong, I actually used to teach uh, different courses, you know, teach courses. I, we have students coming from Hong Kong who uh, take courses on a regular basis. It's about time to, for the violence to stop. There has to be a way. It, there is, you can never justify a pursuit in any name when you shut down the airport, when you shut down the train station, when you harass innocent passengers, and when you have um, airline stewardesses or the pilots being so active in political movement. That's a risk. Uh, there has to be stopped. Uh, thank you for providing um, that kind of perspective um, on, on these, these issues. Uh, it's quite insightful. Um, but I would like to, we've, we've only got two minutes, so one sentence each. I want to ask one final uh, question, and I will start with uh, Nicole. Uh, would you like to see a government change uh, in November in the United States? Uh, can you give us a, a Philippines perspective, a Huang? Can you give us a Vietnamese perspective, um, and Dao Zhang, a Chinese perspective on whether or not uh, you want to see uh, a change uh, in government uh, in November. So, Nicole? 
As a citizen and a private individual, absolutely yes. Um, as a sociologist, what I would say is that Filipinos are actually Trump voters in the United States, Philams in particular, um, and the Filipinos love America more than Americans love America. That's based on a recent poll. So what I would say is even if Trump wins again, um, his, he has a base among Filipino Americans. So I'll just leave that there with no further normative judgment. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Huang, I might turn to you. What's Vietnam wanting? Well, I, I, I don't think any um, from the Vietnamese government would want to answer that question, very, giving very ASEAN way of non-interference and specifically not publicly speaking. Uh, I can't even speak for the Vietnamese uh, government either um, as, a, as a private academic base in Canberra. But, um, I would say that um, on one hand, I think I would I would um, assume that people in Hanoi um, are think are sort of getting a way to understand Trump. So change might um, have to enforce a new learning and a new person uh, in charge. But I think uh, above most, I think the Vietnamese um, policymakers would want to see a strong America. Uh, in order for America to play more global and regional role. Uh, and we do need leadership and good governance for whomever, and America is among uh, those countries. Uh, we, I think everyone wants to see a strong America and whoever it is, whether um, Trump, which is question mark, or uh, any other person. I think that's what ultimately the Vietnamese government would want, a strong America that is interested in the region uh, and interested in being in the region. Uh, and finally, well, to, to end the evening, the fascinating discussion, um, China, is it looking forward to another four years of Trump or would it like to see Biden in the White House? Personally, I think Trump is better. Okay, he's transparent. He treats, he talks, and he gives you warning when he uh, is gonna deliver something and he has a network of associates whose um, behaviors are predictable. And, you know, uh, but on the other hand, in terms of government policy, I think the uh, both over there in the United States, here in China, the agreement is to stay out of each other's mess. Uh, on a more serious note, I would think um, come November, whoever becomes they get elected in or out of office. Uh, there should be more of a continuity in American uh, high level, when I'm talking about presidential level, presence at these regional meetings, such as APEC, such as uh, East Asian Forum, um, because that's one way to um, give everyone a sense of assurance that there, there's normalcy. Um, so I think that's probably what um, uh, the last thing that we could, uh, we would want to see is some more chaotic situation here among eight different Asian countries, because that would be a lot more consequential. 
Thank you um, to our panellists. Uh, I think it's been a, a remarkably interesting, fascinating conversation with diverse uh, points of view, coming at things from an economic, political and sociological perspective. Uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, and thank you also to the audience uh, for watching this La Trobe Asia event. This is not the only event that we are holding to launch uh, our Trump in Asia policy brief. Uh, La Trobe Asia's Matt Smith will be hosting uh, live Asia Rising podcasts with some of the other contributors, beginning with Tanvi Madan from the Brookings Institution uh, on July 7th at 10am Melbourne time. And they'll be discussing uh, the relationship between India and the United States uh, under the uh, Trump administration. So this webinar has been recorded. If you have registered for this event, you will be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready, and we will also include links to the policy brief. Uh, so please follow us on Twitter, at Latrobe Asia, or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Thank you again.